Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. In this episode, I'm talking to Brandon Roten. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at Ground Truth, and he is obsessed with traffic. He is best known for building Wendy's Digital Social, then helping to write Papa John's and Potbelly. He has a successful track record of delivering sustained growth through enterprise-wide transformation initiatives, creating industry-leading social and digital marketing, and delivering 4x or more ROI on budgets of $5 million to $450 million. Brandon has been named an ad-age top digital marketer, and his teams have worked on various projects that have been featured in Fast Company, AdAge, and the Wall Street Journal, and many others. Welcome, Brandon. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Excited to be here. So I'm going to assume you didn't grow up in the digital era like uh, your children are. So what are the aha moments that brought you to the doorstep of you becoming a top digital marketer? I didn't. So I grew up uh, with a pager and then a cell phone, not quite a smartphone. You know, when I got to high school, that's when that sort of stuff started to, to pop on the scene. Was this your cell phone that was in a bag at that time, that kind of cell phone? Wait, <laughs> I do remember as a kid watching the movies, like Lethal Weapon, the guy would pull out the bag phone or whatever. That was a, a big moment. You know, that's what dates movies these days are these phones. You know, you look at the phone, you say, oh, I know when that was wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I remember actually this week talking to some friends about the, a StarTac phone, you know, the really little one that came out. It was so blown away. But uh, but yeah, so so didn't grow up with it. I think the what really broke through on digital for me was I was in an agency and a lot of the problems we were trying to solve related to marketing for a lot of our clients were more about connecting with people in a way we can measure that connection. And traditional media is not very good at that, right? Traditional media is good at reach. It's good at broad-based awareness. It's really good if you got a gargantuan budget, but it's not great if you have a smaller budget or you are trying to actually measure the the incremental impact of a single set of touches. And then for me, that was a breakthrough moment of like, well, we can actually see if someone responds, if they reply, if they connect, if they comment, if they whatever that at the time the thing was in search and in, in the very early days of social. So that what made it interesting to me was this has some measurability to it. This has some efficacy, direct measurement that's meaningful. And as I sort of progressed through my marketing career, it always became important when you first start doing something to measure that efficacy to see, are we solving the right problem? Are we going down the right path? I think you start with digital and digital becomes the kind of the underpinning of your efforts. And then you scale things to the channels that are less measurable as you know it works. So rather than spend you know tons of money on a Super Bowl ad out the gate, do some things first so you understand your messaging, your media, your creative, and then scale those things to those larger mediums when you're ready. It's interesting. I think you hit upon something. You know, before it was really a one-way communication, right? And now it's much more of a two-way communication engagement. But I think the measurability of the ROI is huge. What was the old saying? I know half my advertising is working. I just don't know which half. Now you know. That's exactly right. And if you have a modern plan today, you can build both in. You can do the awareness stuff while you're doing the performance stuff and understand what's working at every level, which is huge, especially for smaller companies that don't have a bunch of money to waste. So let me ask you, being in the digital space for so long and kind of being early on, 
what are some aha moments you had initially, like maybe a couple of them then, and how have they changed now? And what are your more current aha moments that you've had with digital? Because this keeps transforming and changing. I think uh, very early on, one of the biggest moments was when Twitter first came on the scene. Now, this is, again, two decades ago-ish. It's been a while uh, when Twitter first came on the scene. But actually being able to see brands could sound like people, that was a huge moment for me. And obviously, with the work that my team did at Wendy's to build the digital social presence there, that was the cornerstone kind of of it, is, is we wanted to sound like a personality, a person. So that was a huge breakthrough. All of a sudden, brands went from, I think, sterile and lawyery and corporate and kind of a lack of personality almost and edgier brands that did have personality did it through just you know one-way communications as you said like television ads but all of a sudden you could have a much deeper personality you could connect with customers as a human and for me that shifted my mindset completely when i first saw the first brands hinted that like dell did that very very early in the day Taco Bell did it very early in the day. They they weren't scaled yet, but they did it. And when I was working at Wendy's, I remember as we came up with a problem we were trying to solve, and that was essentially attract people under 40. Because if you were over 40, you knew Dave Thomas from you know the commercials in the 80s and 90s. If you were under 40, you didn't. Being able to actually be a challenger brand like Dave was with Where's the Beef and all that stuff that came out in a format that was interactive and you could actually hire like a comedian or a personality to represent that position, a gigantic breakthrough. Controversial at the time. I mean, people wrote articles about how Wendy's was destroying social media because brands shouldn't sound like this. I had people very high in the company who were uncomfortable with what we were doing for a bit. Uh, many that were very comfortable. Obviously, you know, my leaders that were I directly reported to were comfortable with it. But actually having a brand sound like a, a human being, have a personality was a giant breakthrough for me and led me, frankly, down a path that kind of defined my career. I think that's very interesting what you're saying. And I think a lot of people miss this when it comes to branding, is that a big part of branding is actually creating a personality, right? And your ability to do that digitally, I think, speaks to something else that I often find people are not taking full advantage of, is this medium of interaction and engagement. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on all of this. I think without it, modern marketing would be in a very different position. The fact that you have smallish brands, I mean, there's half a dozen behind me, Liquid Death and Gooder and Packy is in a little trouble right now, but Savannah Bananas. There are so many brands that are now part of the culture. And I genuinely believe they couldn't have been in the stages of marketing, you know, 15, 20 years ago, where if you didn't have, you know, $100 million, you couldn't be seen. You know, today you can be a brand that's doing 10, 15, 20 million dollars a year or less and have tools as long as you have a good attitude, as long as you have an interesting point of view to differentiate yourself. I mean, you take these guys right here, Liquid Death as a great example. This company that sells canned water, for God's sake, this is the most commoditized product there is on the planet, literally. So, but they defined a unique brand in a space that's terribly crowded, competitive as can be. And they have great packaging, they have great branding, they have a great social presence. Those things that, again, 25 years ago, couldn't have differentiated because nobody sees the packaging if you're not on a shelf. So you have to have these mechanisms to communicate and express yourself, I think, really break through. And all of a sudden, it's democratized. It becomes this thing that if you have a good idea, you have a good point of view as a brand, you can actually get the exposure you need to potentially be successful. So ideas can win 
because they have these channels of communication that were impossible, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So it's not just Coke selling or Nestle selling bottled water. These guys are on shelves in Walmart now. And it's because they have, you know, something to say that we're saying and mediums to express that thing, which is awesome. You know that I'm sure they got a lot of their foot in the door of these retailers because they had already had a following, right? Where they build up, you know, digitally. So let me ask you, what are the top three things people still don't get quite about digital and that they're missing out on? I think the biggest misconception is that it happens all by itself and it's the only thing you should do. And that sounds a little counterproductive or counterintuitive, maybe. But I have a lot of people, especially smaller brands, who believe that's all you have to do is have a social presence, for example. You mean like just be on Facebook or just be on IM and that's it? They think that's what we got to do. That's it. I'll put on an Instagram page and that's it. And in some cases that works, but it all depends on the problem you're trying to solve. It is literally boils down to that. Social media, and you name the channel of social media, digital marketing, performance marketing, programmatic, all this stuff, they solve individual problems. It's a tool in a toolbox. You have to first start with what is the thing you're trying to accomplish. And it's not sales. Sales is an outcome of what you whatever you're trying to accomplish. But as an example, if you're a brand new brand starting today, first thing you gotta do is figure out who you want to sell to and what your message is to that person that will resonate. And then you figure out what are the likely channels of communication. Because the difference, and just take one section like social, the difference between LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok are really the audience. That's the fundamental difference. And there's a bunch of overlap between you know Insta and TikTok and, and other places. But if you're a B2B company trying to sell a thing, odds are LinkedIn is a good point of starting. But maybe there's a niche in TikTok for the person you're trying to sell in that B2B market or Insta or programmatic advertising. If you're trying to sell an app, it's different than if you're trying to sell a widget, which is different than if you're trying to sell a service. And B2B and B2C are very different. So I think the biggest number one kind of thing that people mistake is they don't start with a problem they're trying to solve, like a marketing brand problem. They start with a channel of communication. All we need is a TV ad or all we need is an Instagram presence or whatever. Especially when you're first starting, you have to focus on something and get good at it first So you can learn about message media creative, like what actually resonates, and then you expand past that. So I think number one is you got to start with a real problem, a brand problem. I need awareness, or I need preference, or I need to understand my target, or I need, you know, whatever, whatever your fundamental brand problem is you're trying to solve. I think number two, other issue people have is they assume that once they figure out their problem, then they're just going to use that one channel. That never is the case. You always scale beyond the initial channel that you think is perfect for your audience, and you end up having a more balanced plan. You end up, as you grow and as your brand grows, or even once you're very established and you're trying to reignite a brand like we did at Wendy's and Papa John's and a few other places, you have to usually have layers. You have a layer that's designed to create awareness and interest in your brand for your target, which is usually broader mediums. And then usually you have a layer that's more about day-to-day. It's a performance layer. This is the thing that like gets your week-to-week sales or your quarter-to-quarter sales while you're building a brand. I see so many people say, I don't believe in performance marketing, or I don't believe in television, or I don't believe in whatever. You name the thing. That's garbage. It all depends on the problem you're trying to solve. So usually you need both layers. You need a branding layer and you need a performance layer. So that's number two. I think you need a layered plan once you get big, once you start to get big. I think the third thing is that you just hire a young person to do this stuff. And that I know that sounds crazy, but I literally have sat in so many meetings where I hear somebody say, oh, we just get an intern. 
and they'll figure out our social presence or whatever. Once you've decided the channels that make sense based on the problem you're trying to solve, and then you get a layered plan rolling, you don't hire people that just happen to be in their 20s because they understand TikTok and TikTok's in the plan. You hire people that are good at the thing. It doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. It matters they're good at the thing. So when I've hired for social teams, for example, I almost always hire somebody that's going to be the primary writer for a social channel like Twitter to sound like the brand. They already sound like it. I just find them online and they sound like the brand. You hire a copywriter that's already writing stuff that sounds exactly like what you want to sound like. And you pull them in and it's really easy to get them to sound like that. But I don't care how old they are or whatever. I care if they're good at the thing. And that includes agencies too. You don't just hire an agency because they're a famous agency. You hire an agency or a creative team or a media partner or whatever because they're good at solving the problem you're trying to solve and the channels you're trying to solve it. So I think those are the three big things is you have to have a clear problem to solve. Usually you have a layered plan. That's almost always the case. And those are the most effective for long and short-term brand growth. And then you got to hire people that are good at the things that you actually need to do. You know, I hear people all the time say like, well, I'm just going to hire a bunch of A players. In what? Marketing is so vast. Like if you need a media plan and you hire a great creative, they're not going to do anything for you. So you got to figure out who can actually solve the problems in what channels with what nuanced plan. That's kind of a big thing. So I want to go a little deeper and be a little bit of devil's advocate because I know what you mean, but I want you to articulate it a little bit further. Some people are going to say, my problem, you know, Brandon, is I need sales. But you're not talking about that kind of problem. You're talking about a deeper problem. So maybe, I don't know if you know the story behind Liquid Death. I don't know it, but I assume you might actually know. What problem will they solve? I mean, like you said, they're in the space of water, right? (laughs) I mean, who doesn't have access to water? (laughs) Very true. We'll talk about Liquid Death in a second. So, But let me be very clear when I say a problem. Sales is a symptom. Traffic is a symptom. It happens when. It's sort of like... Any, a lot of bodily ailments are symptoms of you not doing the thing you're supposed to do. You're not eating right. You're not exercising properly. You name the thing, right? Now, things can happen without you doing something to cause it. But nine times out of 10, there's some underlying reason. So to me, you get sales because you did something right or you're missing sales because you're doing something wrong. And when you dig into most brands, especially brands that were doing well for a long time and then fell off the track, which tends to be the kind of brands I usually work with or have worked with as a CMO anyway, almost always you can find that underlying moment that you went off the track. And you got to test to make sure it's the right thing that's the problem, but you got to find the fundamental problem that you need to solve. And sales, you get sales, you get traffic, as you're solving that problem. It is a consequence of solving the problem. So liquid death, for example, you know, I don't know it thoroughly, I would say, but these are designers. That's really what they are. They're branding people. And to me, the way I view it as an external person, and, and I don't know if they would say it this way, they're proving the point that great branding and great design can sell things that are extremely commoditized. And we all know that. We all know that, but we forget it often. When I have conversations with people about why does a branding matter, it literally is what differentiates for 90% of people one product from another because people trust. They trust things that they understand and they trust things that they have feel like they have a relationship with. And brands do that. Why is Crest most of the toothpaste sales? Why is Coke most of the soda sales? Why you name the category? There's usually a handful of outliers that do really, really well. There's four or five car brands that do really well in the United States, and that's it. 
And you break it down and it boils down to they associate themselves with something bigger that customers actually want. And they usually solve the relatively specific problem. So I would argue this is solving the same problem that Starbucks solves. I want to be seen with this in my hand. That's the problem. It's a status issue. They're solving for differentiation, just purely, I want to be seen as different. Status is a huge thing. That's why BMW exists and Mercedes exists and Rolex exists and Bugatti exists. Almost anybody that's a premium product, at the core of what they're solving for is probably a status thing. Not always, but almost always. So when you get down to it, they've said, that's the problem we're going to solve is status. What are we going to pick to solve it? Well, what's something that people buy a a huge volume of and have shown with products like Fiji that they're willing to spend more money if it solves a status issue? Water is a great thing to tackle. So I think you do have to be specific. So they said design is going to be the vehicle we're going to do it through. And what is the problem we're actually solving is status. We're going to be cool. Most water isn't cool. So cool people will drink our water. We're going to call it liquid death, death to plastic. So fundamentally, like the thing underneath is they want to get rid of plastic. But really, when you break it down, you want to be cool. And that's everybody wants to be cool, right? So it's a great problem to solve. That is a great example. I like the way you articulate it. Now, I want to go to the third point. I think this is an important one about hiring the right people. And a lot of times, I think you're right. People want to hire someone young because, hey, they know Facebook. They know Instagram. But what they fail to recognize is they may be on it and use it, but to think of it and use it strategically is completely different. And I think that's what you're talking about. So what do you look for and how do you screen for someone who can actually think of it from not only from a user standpoint, but from a strategic standpoint when it comes to branding and social? For me, it really breaks down to if I know what I'm going to do, so I understand the specific strategy I'm going to employ, I find people who are already good at that strategy. People who are literally writing on the medium that I intend to use to grow my brand. People who are good at that programmatic. They have examples in their past that are clear and they can speak in detail to. Because a lot of people take credit for things that they don't do. You see that all the time where people say, you know, I did a thing. And then you really push them on it. They can't really give you a good answer of how it was done or why it was done. It's because they didn't really do it. They were just there when it happened. And that's okay. You know, you need support. That's how it works. But you find people who are really good at the specific strategy. When you're doing something brand new, and that happens, when you're doing something brand new, you got to find as close as you can to, I think this person can do the piece that's the most important. So take the Wendy's example. When we first started pushing on at Wendy's, yeah, there were a few brands doing what we're doing, but not to the scale, not with such a conservative brand, not with a brand that was so established that we're doing at serious levels where they were literally ripping on other brands in social media that didn't exist. So we hired a social media writer. Her name was Amy. That's what she did as a copywriter personally in her own channels and was a professional copywriter. That's what, she, that's what her role was at an agency. So fundamentally, you can find somebody who you know understands the strategic part because she's she has examples in the world of doing that and sounds like what you want her to sound like in her personal life. So let her just be her. Let kind of Amy, and that lets you get what you want. And then ultimately, as that team grew and it expanded, you know, we hired an agency who hired a comedian that that's all he did was rip people on stage. He was literally somebody who just would rip people to shreds standing on stage. So he was really quick-witted, really good at it. So I think you start with examples in the real world that demonstrate they're going to be good at the thing. And if the thing you're trying to do is a bit unique or relatively groundbreaking, then you find as close as you can to those proxies. I really believe that if you want to move fast, you got to start 
at a spot where you're going to accomplish the main thing you're trying to accomplish, the, the voice you're trying to convey, the channel you're trying to be good at. If I know I'm going to use, for example, I'm, you know, selling product that I know I'm going to use programmatic advertising for, I'm not going to hire an agency that their primary thing is television. I'm going to hire an agency that primary thing is programmatic because that's what I know I'm going to start with. So you got to find examples in the real world. How important are customer insights when it comes to digital marketing? I think they're really important, especially as you're learning what works and what doesn't for your marketing plan. But I'm going to argue with you a little bit here. You can find that just based on analytics, can't you? But I think that's not enough, right? Sometimes. Right. So I think it isn't. So let me take a step back. It, it is really important to make sure you're solving a real problem. That's absolutely critical. So that stage of research is important. But I also think when you're trying to solve a real problem, if it's a relatively new problem, you're not going to find a ton of examples of people doing it by definition. So you have to be a bit careful. It's not about the anecdotal cases, the dozens or hundreds of anecdotal cases. It's more about like, yeah, I hear people crying that they need this thing, that this is a problem they're trying to solve. So I think that's important. I think on the side of like understanding what's working, you can fall down a rabbit hole really quick on things like last touch attribution, on things like pure conversion rates. If all you care about is your click-through rate or your CAC or your you know, CPM, you're going to fall down a trap pretty quick. So I do think you use analytics to understand what's working, but you have to understand like fundamentally what is the process you're putting in front of your customer and what stages of that process are they doing what you wanted them to do so you can adjust the process. So, you know, a very specific example I'll give you is Airbnb. Airbnb was famous for having a gargantuan programmatic effort. And I'm a big believer in programmatic. I think it works well when you do it right. That was really all they were doing was programmatic marketing. You know, go back to that third problem I talked about where you just you focus on one side of the equation, not the other. And they found out that they were wasting a bunch of money because they were getting clicks, but not sales from those clicks. So they were so obsessed with the singular analytic of click-through rate that they didn't look at like lifetime value. They didn't look at true acquisition costs. They didn't look at long-term brand effect and like loyalty and affinity. They got so myopic on the specific you know metric that they lost kind of the narrative of what they were trying to accomplish. So what did they do? I'd argue they actually didn't do even the right thing. It's working now, but I think it's working for the same reason performance worked at first. They flipped entirely to brand. So they just did the opposite thing. And just like performance at first worked, but then it starts to lose efficiency, it's going to work for a while. But what they're going to realize, like almost every brand realizes, I think, is, okay, it's actually an equation. Like we have to have like the top awareness, affinity, play. And then we have to bring people along and get conversion at that last moment when they're making the decision using performance marketing and programmatic and things like that. I think it's critical. Those insights are critical, but they're within context of what you're trying to actually accomplish. And when someone tries to hand you, you know, you go on your Google Analytics dashboard, you go on your Facebook campaign manager, you name the thing, almost always they're selling you on the thing that they're good at and for that last touch that they were involved in. People take credit for everything else too, right? But it's not telling you the story. So I think a sophisticated marketer walks in saying, I know what I'm trying to accomplish. So I know the problem I'm trying to solve. I know the steps that I believe are important to solve it. And then I look at the steps and I look at what happens in each of the steps. And I have some metrics at each step to understand the effect of those steps. And then I tweak based on if people move into the process the way I expected. And yeah, some people will jump, but I'm talking like law, large numbers here, right? You, you end up like, in a netting out. 
And you have to understand for you what is the right formula that gets you to the long-term growth and the make your quarter numbers that you need to do as a marketer. And that's not straightforward. You can build an MTA, you can build a media mix model, you can build these stuff, but even those are still contextually, it's important to understand the problem. If you're trying to solve a brand issue like I was at, at Papa John's, or you're trying to solve a, a positioning issue like I was at Wendy's, those are two different kind of sets of tactics and frankly, two different ways to read the numbers. So you have to be a little more nuanced in, in how you look at it and understand what you're trying to accomplish. It's not one size fits all. So you mentioned quite a few KPIs and I'm curious, and I think sometimes people emphasize the wrong KPIs, as you mentioned with Airbnb. Have you found there's certain KPIs that are a great starting point to definitely focus on, and then you can keep tweaking again based on the problem you're trying to solve? Totally. I think one example of a KPI that people don't pay as much attention to as they should, especially in consumer brands, is lifetime value. So lifetime value is well trod in B2B. It's well done in direct-to-consumer marketing. But a lot of B2C brands don't think about lifetime value. They think about that one transaction that happens this week or today or this quarter or whatever. And lifetime value is an extremely important metric to get your head wrapped around because then you can understand the long-term consequences of those short-term actions you take, like discounting, like promotional activity, like you know giant blitzes of media. So you understand what the effect of it is. So I think the starting point for most brands that I deal with anyways there is will at least understand the effect of your media beyond the media window. So if you're not going to think about lifetime value, at least think about the quarter instead of the week. Because what happens is you run a media campaign, you don't just get activity during the window of the media campaign. You get activity after because people have learned about you or maybe gotten interested in you during that window. So I tell people, measure your effectiveness, your ROI or your ROAS, your return on ad spend, not just in the media window, but look at the halo after. That's really a best practice for most marketers today. But a lot of younger, unsophisticated or smaller spenders they only look at the media window and they don't understand there's a larger effect. Now, if you really want to take it to the degree, and you should, if you're able to, you don't just look at the blitz and what it does. You look at what it does to lifetime value. You look at what it does to the net effect on a customer. Because you know what? It may require only one ad campaign for you to become a lifetime liquid death buyer because you just fall in love and you buy it all the time. But a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people need to be re-upped. A lot of people need to be reminded. A lot of people need to be pushed a little. So I think when you get down to it, we need to consider lifetime value. That's a very, very important metric. Can you give me an example of how you actually do that so that people understand exactly what you're talking about? The simplest way to do it, and not necessarily the best, but the simplest way to do it is you literally take your loyalists and what is their frequency, what is their average spend, and multiply that over a year. And then you figure out what your, how long your loyalists tend to stick with your brand. So that gives you an equation that says, I understand the yearly value of someone and I understand how long it is before they leave. So like B2B SaaS products or subscription-based products are really easy for that because our average subscriber is here for three years and we know each year they're worth X. So three times X gives us that lifetime value. So then you can easily do the math on, well, my acquisition cost for an individual is 500 bucks. Well, they're worth $200 a year. So they're worth $600 over the course of three years. So should I spend $500 to get $600 over three years? Good equation. But let's just pick different numbers. Let's say they're worth $100 a year and it's $50 to acquire someone and their average is three years. Well, that's $300, right, of lifetime value. $50, you may say to yourself, well, it costs me half what I get from them in their first subscription year. It's not worth it. 
But if you did the math and say, well, actually, there were $300, would you pay 50 to get to 300 Maybe you would. It depends on your P&L, depends on your situation. So lifetime value is important because it fundamentally, it gives you something to compare your acquisition costs to what you believe your acquisition cost is. And I think that's the second one that's really important is acquisition costs. So what's your customer acquisition cost? Your CAC, as most people call it. And that's harder in B2C sometimes because you have to look at your individual media efforts. You have to look at your branding efforts. You have to kind of find a way to find an equation that gets it all together. But if you understand your lifetime value and you understand your customer acquisition cost, get things get so much easier. All of a sudden, then you can just do that math that we just did that says, am I spending too much to acquire a customer based on what I'm benefiting from that customer? If you just took that and did it the way most you know, relatively small or, or unsophisticated marketers do it, is you'd actually just say, well, what is my acquisition cost and what is their first transaction? And that's it. And the problem with that is you are discounting their entire life <laughs> of acquiring that customer potentially. And you're even discounting like, the halo post media. You're only looking at literally the media window. So I want to know my acquisition cost and I want to know my media cost. So I get my ROAS. But the truth is you're ignoring the rest. And that's how you get to these short term. I think that's how you get to a pure performance marketing plan, frankly. And that's it is you just get and, and especially one that's that's totally lopsided. And you do the math. If I actually like look at it in hard and break it down, I'm losing my shirt on marketing. You have to think beyond that. So lifetime value, acquisition costs are very important. There are many others, but I would say if you can start with those two, you are in much better position than most people are. And what's interesting, that automatically starts getting you focused on the ROI, right? And that gets started you focusing on tweaking it because you got to see the real results from it. Whereas most people focus on the big numbers of likes or shares and things like that. Not that they're not important, but they shouldn't be the only focus. And certainly they're not going to lead you to the ROI. They will not. Nobody, you know, I used to joke all the time that my CFOs have never cared about impressions or likes. They just don't. Those are irrelevant. They care about things that directly solve a problem that they know correlates to business growth or they care about business growth. So if I can connect the dots very clearly and say, hey, we have a lot of evidence that if we solve this problem, we will result in traffic, we will result in sales. That's a game changer to have a conversation with your board, your CFO, whatever. So where do you see the future of digital going and what area would you like to really focus in on? Yeah, so I really believe the near future is about optimization of current media plans out there. AI is doing, I mean, AI is a buzzword right now, right? But as far as what it's capable of accomplishing for media, it is insane. Just insane. I mean, company I work for, Ground Truth, you know, we're experimenting with four or five different paths of AI right now. And, and one we just shared with a big customer base. I mean, you're talking squeezing double digit changes out of your media plans if you just apply kind of the constant optimization models to media. What used to be pretty simple algorithms now become like compounded improvements very, very quickly. So I think AI is going to dramatically change, especially performance marketing, but it's probably going to change marketing net because it will make plans that weren't efficient, efficient. And it will also tell you what elements, long-term, tell you what elements of your plan you know, need to be fixed, what creative, what message, stuff like that. So I think that's- Give me an example of how you, what exactly you mean by how using AI to optimize plans. I'll give you a very specific example. So, you know, when you're running a media plan, typically you do an A-B test to understand, are you dealing with the right target? Do you have the right message? Do you have the right creative? 
do you have the right assumptions within your media plan? Things like reach or geographical target or whatever it is. Those AB plans can only be done with so many variables. You might be able to do five or six, you know, it's technically not AB at that point, but you get what I'm saying. Like it's five or six iterations. AI can let you do thousands within hours. So all of a sudden, those, those little percentage increases, and they're small, but you compound it over thousands of tests and they become significant. And then all of a sudden, just your starting point, you are miles ahead of where you otherwise would have been at your start of your ad. And then it gets really interesting. As the ad runs, it's learning. And right now, most ad platforms are not really learning once the ad starts. It's just kind of out there. At that point, you cross your fingers as a marketer and say, at the other end of it, I hope we get the result we were looking for. But as you're running, sophisticated systems like the systems we have are constantly tweaking that ad. They're tweaking the audiences. They're tweaking the variables within the ad to ensure that you get to the end goal. So it's the difference between having like a, you know, pushing something down the hill and driving it down the hill. It's that different in the ability to control it. And humans cannot do it at the scale that AI can do it at because there's too many variables. Like we're good at sensing patterns that are two or three steps. AI can do 25 steps without even, you know, thinking about it. It is. Now you have to put controls in it. AI is what you build it. Like everything is what you build it, right? It still needs human input. Yeah. So there, there's always things that are flawed. There's always things that, you know, people make assumptions that are wrong and that bakes a problem into the process. But yeah, you can get to the point where it's as if you have, you need a media planner at the beginning. You need a media planner to check in and to va validate some of the steps. But you would need a thousand media planners looking at every detail all the time to do what this sort of automation is capable of. That is super exciting because, again, you go back to like solving the problem. If you can orient around the problem you're trying to solve and have an intelligent system constantly recalibrating to solve the problem, that's a game changer. So I think that is a big, big deal. You know, I didn't get very excited about Metaverse when it first started hitting. I didn't get excited about a lot of tech as it started to emerge. I got excited about social and started to emerge by no chance I'm smarter than anybody else on the street. Like I can see it in the work. If you can squeeze 10, 15, 20, 30% more effect out of your media campaign, it's a game changer for, especially for small brands. If you're running three or $4 million a year in advertising, instead of, you know, P&G running billions a year in advertising, you can see a dramatic difference in the effect of your marketing. I think it's going to make a lot of marketing departments right now that are seen as an expense and investment. It's going to change the way that people think about marketing. It's going to take a few years, but it's very exciting to see, you know, our profession, which by some is seen as black magic, will all of a sudden become somewhat formulaic and not from a creative standpoint, not from a strategic standpoint, but from a, like, once it gets rolling, let the thing do what it's supposed to do. We shouldn't have to guess. We shouldn't have to constantly defend this investment. It should be clear that it's working. And I think the AI will help us do that. And that ball kind of got rolling with the measurability aspect of digital, right? I mean, you can start actually seeing it as an investment as opposed to just an expense, because you can see that for every thousand, you're going to get X ROI on a consistent basis if you start tweaking and perfecting your formula. But I think what you're saying now, this is reaching a whole nother level. And I can hear it in your voice, <laughs> the excitement you have with uh, AI and its abilities. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. For, frankly, it's the reason I joined the company I'm at right now, because I was very frustrated as a CMO at big brands with the actual attribution of media. And there's a million tools. I built an MTA at two different brands. I 
you know, but spending billions, I have spent probably six or $7 billion in media up at this point in my career. And truthfully, I could probably truly measure the impact of one sixth, one seventh, one eighth of that. It's shameful. Now we got to the goal we wanted to get at the destination, you know, the brands I've worked for have been very fortunate and done well. The deans were awesome, but we need to fix that. We need to get to the point where, you know, when you put some dollars down that you're going to get at least most of what you were hoping to get. And I really believe, you know, this, again, it's why I joined this company, because this is a company that's going to be on the forefront of that stuff. It's not going to be a household name anytime soon. It doesn't need to be. But we want to fix the problems that right now are just inherent to wasteful media and tools like this will let us do it. That sounds exciting. Let me ask you, in the world of digital marketing, who would you love to have lunch with and why? So, yeah, there's there's a lot of amazing, amazing marketers, right? But when you get down to it, there are a few brands that do kind of outstanding, consistent work. I would love to buy lunch for this entire team, for God's sake. I mean, just literally, I will say uh, yeah, a week of pizza for everybody, you know, or whatever they eat, sushi, I don't care. But this team is amazing. You know, I've been very fortunate that I worked with the one of the guys who was, you know, one of the founders of this brand's marketing. You know, they're, they're still for a long time. But this is an example of a brand that I hold in really high regard. Anybody that can, again, sell a commoditized product that is differentiated and actually means something to people. Like, literally, you feel it in your guts. Like, people get Red Bull tattoos because they believe it. So I think Red Bull is amazing. I think you know, there's so many, there's so many, but the, I love what Duolingo is doing in social right now. So, you know, the primary on that account is somebody that I talk to every now and then on LinkedIn, kind of just casually. There are so many that are so good. I actually also don't believe it's usually an individual. And I say that as someone who has been part of teams that are amazing, you need a team around you that both gets excited about it, gets it and can execute. At the end of the day, you can have the best ideas in the world, but nobody sees our PowerPoints. They only see the work. So I actually love celebrating teams. You know, I'm so proud of the work Wendy's is still doing. Papa John's is still doing. Potbelly is still doing. You know, I'm not, I haven't been there for years, but the teams are what really, really matter. So yeah, tons and tons of brands. Yeah, it does take a team. Yeah, for sure. Totally. And you have the right people, but everybody has to have the same level of energy too, because this is not at first, especially the first six months or a year of changing a brand or building a brand it is very thankless work. It is hard. And every day you have evidence why you should stop and just do something easy. The teams that hold down and know the problem they're solving and have those indicators that they're starting to solve the problems that they need to solve and build those plans that are more nuanced and they understand the steps and they understand the KPIs that are necessary to get to the solving that problem. They're few and far between, and, and they should be celebrated. If there are three characteristics you look for when you're hiring someone, what are they and why? Well, number one, they have to be good at the thing I'm trying to do. So that is really important. I'm a big believer. You define that problem, and you bring in people that will solve that problem. So that's the biggest filter. Second is they have to have energy. And I don't need you constantly jumping up and down. Like I get excited when I talk about this stuff. That's not what I mean. What I mean like is passion for the thing that they're going to be doing. If that person is literally, you know, checking in and checking out and just doing the thing every day and can't hear it in their voice, you can't feel it in the work, which is the most important piece. When I ask them about the old products, like, what are you proud of? I want to hear them get excited about, you know, solving the problem they solve. So they got to have that passion. That gives you an X factor that you just can't calculate. And I think past that, they have to be logical. And that sounds really strange. But they have to practically be able to understand, you know, when they need to just dissent and commit. 
for example, or when they don't understand a number, they have to be curious and they have to be able to ask about why that number is the way it is. They don't understand why a decision was made. They have to be practical, logical. Those three things sometimes can be, you know, in contrast to each other, right? You can be really passionate and not li- and stubborn as hell and not listen to anybody. And that's a bad combination. It is. You have to be stubborn on the things that you need to be stubborn on, but you have to be open when you don't understand a thing, when you need help with a thing, when you need to hire help for a thing. So you got to be good at the thing. You got to be really passionate about what you need to be good at. And at the end of the day, you have to be kind of logical and curious and willing to say you don't understand. And there, there aren't a lot of people that fit those three criteria, by the way, especially for specific jobs. Yep, I agree. I found I look for three things. I say three things plus one. One, are they thinkers, doers, and are they hungry? And that's what you're talking about passion. I can't teach hunger. And the plus one is actually what you're talking about also. Is it's philosophical. And what I mean by that, I actually looked it up, right? I and mean, I've used it all my life. But it actually means your critical thinking and know that there's more than one way to solve a problem. And you don't care about the problem. It's because you absolutely love solutions. Yeah, you get excited when you solve that thing. That's awesome. I think our philosophies are very, very much the same. I do get a bit specific, though, because usually in the organizations I'm at, you know, at least for the last you know 20 years-ish, there is a specific problem that we define that needs to be solved. And you almost always need to bring in people that are good at that one thing. And that sounds strange, but if you've got a creative issue, you bring in a killer creative team. If you've got a messaging issue, you bring in a great strategist. If you've got a a media issue, you bring in a great media team or agency or person or partner. You got to get specific because especially in the short run, I like making progress fast. I don't like, you know, back in two years and be like, oh, we're still building. No, 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 no. You need in the first six months, you need a few wins. In the first year, you need a few wins. In that second year, you need some big wins. You know, you got to get to the point where you can see the change happening, especially if you've got a really clear problem to solve. Well, listen, Brandon, it was a pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot, and I think our listeners will enjoy our conversation. And I actually want to come back to you. I want to see where your experience with AI and uh, digital is going. I look forward to doing another episode with you down the line. Sounds great. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.